Um, so I was going to, like I, I told you a couple weeks ago, we have a review looming on the horizon. Um, and we left just enough unsaid last Sunday that we're, we're not there yet. So probably next Sunday, we'll go back to 1 John 1, 8 and go all the way through verse 6 of chapter 2 and try to sew all of this into one quilt or whatever you want to call it. Um, 1 John 2, 6. I don't know, maybe it's not working. There it is. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's too many pronouns when you proof text down to one verse like this. So the, what this first of all is saying is that whoever, any person, any human being who says that he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way that Jesus himself also walked. So, so we're clear. Um, I think probably what we need, though, more than anything else, is to get a grip in, in our minds on what it means to abide in him. And I know if you grew up in church, um, if you ever went to uh, Sunday school, if you've ever you know, read your Bible from cover to cover, there's a sense in which you already know what this means and you don't need it explained to you, right? Here's the, here's the real measure of whether you understand it, though. Could you come up here and explain to somebody else what it means? There are so many Christian truths that we've embraced by faith and we just, we get it, we, we, we know. But if somebody were to ask, what does it mean to abide in Christ? You might be stretched a little more to explain it than you are to just comprehend it. So I'm going to drag us through an explanation because I think we need it. And to that end, we're going to go back to John 15. You might remember that I told you when we started this epistle <clears throat> that it is in many ways a commentary on the gospel of John. So flip back to John 15, which I might have marked. I don't Nope, I didn't. And we're going to try to walk away here with the level of comprehension of what it means to abide in Jesus Christ, that we could explain it to somebody else were they to ask us um, and not just be like, well, you know, just like you read your Bible and you pray. Come on, we can do better than that, right? John 15, 1, you can't do better than reading your Bible and praying. That's not what I meant. <clears throat> I am the true vine. Is everybody there? John 15, 1. It's okay to talk to me, everybody. I don't stop being a human being when I get up here. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus uses <clears throat> horticultural language to help us understand abiding, gardening terms, right? We have um, a fence at the end of our yard, and then on the other side of that fence is the third uh, hole of uh, the Tregaron golf course, right? So it's the, uh, you're not out of bounds until you come into my yard, but it's rough, rough, like it's tall. You're probably not getting out if you hit a ball in there. 
Um, this is partly because the golf course allows any variety of weed that would like to grow to grow on the other side of my fence. And the only thing I can do about it is spray the, the herbicide that kills everything. And I don't really want to do that because then you end up with a bunch of ground erosion. I can't plant anything over there. It's not mine. And once a year, they come by and indiscriminately mow it down right before winter. <clears throat> so one of the things uh, that we got for the first time, not last year, but the year before, was milkweed. You familiar with milkweed? It's this vine that grows through your chain link fence, or literally anything, actually, the siding of your house. And, uh, and then it, it, towards the end of the year, it grows these long, uh, giant bean-shaped pods full of uh, feathery white seeds that will eventually dry, burst open, and then the seeds go everywhere. <clears throat> In an effort to relive my childhood, last spring, early spring, uh, Kate and I were out in the yard doing something, probably hitting golf balls, and I noticed that there was a substantial amount of milkweed pods that had not broke open and blown everywhere. So Kate and I helped that to happen for about 15 minutes. We just blew milkweed, and it was going everywhere. Uh, you might think, what kind of an adult would do something like that? And I'm the kind of adult that would do something like that. We had a really good time. And we also had a lot more milkweed by the end of the summer than we'd had the, by the end of the previous summer, right? So when you think of a vine, that's, that's what you probably think of in the United States because not a lot of folks have grapes growing in, on their property. Um, so that, it just get, curls around stuff and branches off and eventually will cover everything. So Jesus <coughs> uses a vine to describe abiding. Uh, a vine growing from the ground will branch off in many directions, right? We're good with that, okay. Um, so my question is, how does a branch become part of the vine? It doesn't become part of the vine. It grows from the vine, right? It is, from its inception, part of the vine. How does this help us understand abiding in Christ? The branch doesn't walk to the vine. It doesn't float to the vine. It grows from the vine. And at no point have I ever seen somebody just grow as a Christian from infancy. Where you're like, when they're two, you look at them and you just know. Or they're three, you oh, that's a child of God. I've never seen this happen. I've never even heard of it happening. So if the vine produces the branches, <clears throat> and Jesus uses vine terminology to describe what it means to abide in him, then there must be another way by which we become part of the true vine. Right? Okay, go to Romans 11. The babies have a lot to say this morning, don't they? Romans 11, we'll start at verse 17. <clears throat> if some of the branches were broken off, wait, what? Should we go back? We don't have time. It's already 
10.28. We don't have time to go back. Trust me, I'll fill in the blanks, all right? Some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, okay, so not grapes, now we're talking about olives, and we're not talking about a vine, we're talking about trees, but it's still horticultural language, okay? You, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, uh, for a little bit of a framework, it's important to understand that Paul is talking about people groups here. Um, the folks that got cut off, that would be Old Testament Israel, who refused to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. So to whatever degree you were part of the vine, grew from it naturally, meaning you were the offspring physically of Abraham, but refused to embrace Jesus Christ by faith, you stopped being part of the family of God. Unless you are a Christian, according to John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. Unless you are a believer, you are not part of the true vine. So you've got natural genetic Israel being cut off because they refuse to embrace the Messiah by faith. And then you have Gentiles who were not naturally part of the family of God, not born children of Abraham who are embracing Jesus Christ by faith and thus are being grafted in to the true vine. So how do you become part of the vine or part of the olive tree if you want to use Romans 11? Either way, I mean, whether you're not part or are part has to do with whether or not you have embraced Jesus Christ by faith. That's the only difference. So we're talking about people, groups, uh, <clears throat> natural children of Abraham, Gentiles, whether or not they're part of the true vine depends on if they've believed in Jesus. Now, the gospel goes right here. That's where you have to, if you, um, if you were talking about this with somebody, you would have to stop and say, for the sake of discussion, here's what I believe. A long, long time ago, God created male and female, man and woman, in his image. He put them in paradise and he said, pretty much, do whatever you want, don't eat from that tree. And they ate from that tree. And the moment that they ate from that tree, they plunged all of human nature into subjection to sin. This is what I believe. Everything's broken because of that fall into sin. I also believe at the end of the day, everybody knows that everything is broken once you're past about the age of three and a half or four. As you become conscious, you become self-conscious. 
the shame that was felt by Adam and Eve in the garden that caused them to sew together fig leaves to cover themselves because they knew they were naked. That shame echoes through the ages and generations into your heart. Somebody uh, asked a hilarious question this week. Well, I'll call her out. It was Emily, wherever she went. Oh, she's right there. Um, she had an interview, right? And she texted uh, a group that Matt and I are in, and she's like, why are job interviews so embarrassing for no reason? And I thought, what a great observation, because it's true. And I know the answer, and so do many of you, and so probably did she. She was speaking more to the emotion of it. But the reason that it's embarrassing is because to be peered at closely is uncomfortable for us. And the reason it's uncomfortable for us to be looked at closely is because we have this naturally kind of high level of shame and insecurity about us as a result of the fall. The nakedness that brought about the shame that Adam and Eve felt is, is reflected in your day-to-day -day life, whether you want it to be or not. Everybody knows everything's broken. And so we come up with all kinds of ways to fix what's broken. There are four wells, generally speaking, that I refer to when we talk about the, the, the fixes that humanity has. So um, you can think of them as old wells. Or you can think of them as old bandages that we use to try to patch up what, what's, what's been injured by the fall. <clears throat> I think the most common one is self-improvement. The well of self. The bandage of self. And basically what this says is that um, if I can improve myself, then I won't feel fear, shame, and guilt anymore. A better version of me will satisfy the sense of insecurity that I have in my day-to-day -day life. And if you think that's not one of the wells that humanity goes to, just look as you're driving uh, to work tomorrow at how many fitness centers there are. How many tanning places there are. How much money goes into fashion advertising. Another well that we go to uh, that also, by the way, doesn't work. In fact, let me, eh, we don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. The reason that the well of self doesn't work is because once you have improved yourself, true or false, you're still there and it's still not enough. So when I was 18, I'm like, man, someday I'm going to make $50,000 a year and then I'm going to be set. How's, exactly. Nobody told me kids cost $2,400 a month in groceries, so it wasn't enough money. I've improved myself to the point where I'm making more than 50. And it's not enough. It doesn't work. That's one example. Another well that we go to is the well of others. If I can get other people to support and approve and think highly of me, that will deal with the fear, shame, and guilt that I encounter in my day-to-day -day life and looking in myself. The problem is, if you get the Senate of the United States and the Congress and the President and the Supreme Court to declare that you're wonderful, you're still going to die. So it doesn't really deal with the ultimate fear, the ultimate shame, the ultimate guilt that you have over your sin. Another bandage that we like to put on what's broken because of sin is the bandage of the world. So let me go do all the drugs. Let me go do all the sex. Let me go do all the rock and roll. 
And that doesn't work either. Because what happens when you try to engage those base fleshly appetites is the appetite just grows. This is why uh, there's a meme. I don't probably shouldn't share stuff like this from the pulpit, but it illustrates the point. Shows the world's fattest man at the World Fair in, I don't know, like late 1800s. And he is smaller than most of the people you encounter at Walmart nowadays. Our appetites are just growing. Drugs, right? What has to happen before somebody will even think about getting off drugs? They got to hit rock bottom. What does that usually involve? Usually means they're doing something so debasing to feed that appetite that we cover our mouths when we hear their stories. Alcohol, just fill in the blank. So the world doesn't work. So then we'll go, last but not least, to the well of religion or the bandage of religion. And what this is, is really clever. It's usually... Uh, it's usually ascetic, like self-denial. I'm going to suffer because of my hedonistic lifestyle up to this point. Let me suffer so that I can stave off the end and earn uh, some, some mercy from God's judgment. What we're really doing is creating a moral system by which we think we can put God into our debt. So I won't eat this, I won't drink that, I won't touch this, I won't talk to those people. And then we begin to keep our moral system. The problem with that is, even at our best, we can't keep our own moral system, let alone the one that he's set up. So it's insufficient. So all of humanity's fixes for everything being broken because of the fall are insufficient. God knew that, which is why he promised before he even cast Adam and Eve out of the garden that he was going to deal with the fall. He promised a redeemer. In Genesis 3.15, he said, From the seed of the woman will come one who will bruise the serpent on his head. We see this play out in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly obedient to all that God had commanded. If you want to know the heart of God, look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels. He did exactly what the Father wanted him to do. And what did humanity do? They rejected him. Why? Because we like our bandages better. What was the call of Christ after he finished living the perfect life? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, And I'll give you rest. What did humanity do? Rejected that. No, no, thanks. I'll take self-improvement. No, no, thanks. I'll take other people approving of me. No, no, thanks. I'll take the world. No, thanks. I'll take religion. And ultimately, it was the religious people that really had the, um, the most obvious hand in putting him to death. So Jesus hangs on a cross and he dies. And while he's hanging on the cross, he becomes the propitiation for our sins, which means he's dealing with the wrath of God. There's this moment where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where in his humanity, he cannot comprehend of what, it would, what, what, what reason God would have for turning his face away from him. But that's what happens because Jesus lives out for some excruciating moments 
what we're all going to live out in eternity apart from him, which means separation from God, and that he's going to equip you, if you reject Jesus Christ, he's going to equip you with a body that is capable of dying for eternity. I don't know if there's a literal lake of fire. I don't want to find out. I know this. To be separated from God who created you may sound like what you want here and now because you refuse to embrace him by faith. But when you, if you actually experience it in existence without the presence of God, you would flee from that as fast as your feet could carry you. And Jesus hangs on the cross and experiences it in a moment. And then he yields up his spirit. And three days later, he rises again, victorious over sin and death in the grave. And says, all who believe in me, I will in no way cast out. He does not reject sinners who have for most their lives rejected him. Abide in me means be grafted in to the true vine by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, Redeemer, Ransomer of sinners, Lord of lords, and King of kings. So in verse 1 and 2 of John 15, Jesus points out there are no fruitless vines growing from himself. Fruitless vines are cut away. It's amazing how in the midst of this instruction about abiding in him, the Son of God himself could not resist but insert a warning for all of the dead hanger-on Christians who don't actually believe in him but come to church anyway. You will be withered at some point, gathered up and thrown into the fire. I think it was George Ward who said, just because the cat had kittens in the oven doesn't make them biscuits. When I was like 13 or 14. You, maybe it was my mother, who's a far more commendable and respectable person than the person I just attributed that quote to. The idea, though, is just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian, right? Second, those who do bear fruit are pruned. Love this because that means if I finish reading John 15, 1 and 2 and you, <clears throat> because you're a good Christian, you're like, I am, got it, I'm good. You don't even to say anymore, pastor, nailing it. Oh, the problem for you is, and I've lived this and we'll live it again before the Lord takes me home. The problem for us then is if you're nailing it, you're not going to get cut off, but you are going to get cut back, right? And it hurts and we don't like it. So you're either getting cut off or you're getting cut back, depending on what? Fruit, fruit bearing. So what fruit? Galatians 5. Everybody remember this? It's probably, my gosh, a little, a little less than two years ago now. Now, the works of the flesh, this is Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident. 
or the deeds of the flesh, if you like that better. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He's like, I mean, do I need to keep going? The deeds of the flesh are those things. Things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. Let's go through them again real quick. Sexual immorality. Any impure thoughts in the room? You don't have to admit it. Don't raise your hand and make it weird for everybody. Sensuality? Idolatry? Are you uh, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength through the week? Or are there some other things? Um, Sorcery? We're like, sweet, there's at least one. (laughs) Except the word here is pharmakia, which is drugs. And I always say, like, definitely take care of yourself. Like, do what you got to do to get better when you're sick. But be real careful and understand what the thing that you're putting in your body is doing. I learned that the hard way. Enmity, strife. Jealousy, that's mine. Not a problem, right? Fits of anger. Okay, let's hit the rewind button to an hour and 15 minutes ago when I walked right through that door and saw what we were contending with. And I still have to get up here and preach. Rivalries. Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Probably okay there. I hope we're okay there, right? (laughs) And things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit, okay? So you got deeds of the flesh, works of the flesh, and you've got fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Some of you will recall from our series in Galatians that there are deeds and then there is fruit. Deeds are what we do, left to ourselves. Fruit is what we produce, having been grafted into the vine. One is something we do, the other one is a consequence of what we are. You may also recall that I pointed out fruit is singular, because you will produce all of it. Not perfectly, but really. And finally, you'll recall that, again, the difference is whether we belong to Jesus Christ. So with all of that in mind, look back at John 15, verse 3. Already, John 15, 3, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot. I hope you're all looking. John 15, verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jackie used to have an apple tree. 
I don't. I already forgot the story. I was heartbroken after being estranged from them for a couple of years to go back to their house and find that they had killed the tree and cut it down. <laughs> but I'm sure Jackie would tell you that not once did a branch ever fall off of that tree and then grow an apple. It does not happen. I'm the vine, you are the branches, verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Now stay in John 15, but recall, in fact, oh good, it's still up there. 1 John 2, 6, which says, whoever says, says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same manner which he himself walked. Two questions then, uh, now that we understand abiding in him, right? To whom does this apply? That's one. And uh, then the other one is, how do you walk or or Knowing how he walked, how do you walk? So question one, to whom does this apply? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. To whom does this apply? If you're looking at a milkweed vine here growing on my fence, you would notice the difference between that one and if you just went to the south one yard, my much more responsible homeowner neighbors have a beautiful garden filled with a variety of fruits and vegetables, including grapes. I grow milkweed, they grow grapes. From which vine, mine or theirs, would you expect grapes to grow? The grapevine. So to whom does this apply? Who ought to walk in the same way in which he walked? Well, if you should expect grapes from every branch that abides in a grapevine, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So the first question is answered. To whom does this apply? Anyone who claims to, to abide in Christ. And I know you're like, well, if I knew it was that obvious, I knew that. We thought you were asking something deeper. Okay, second question. How do you walk? And how did he walk? Verse 8, John 15. I told you to stay there. I hope you listened. John 15, look at verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit bearing proves something. Amen? But what comes first? As the Father has loved me, verse 9, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
Abiding in the love of Jesus comes first. And I know some of you think I'm beating a dead horse, but you cannot possibly imagine how quickly we lose sight of this. This order matters. The moment you begin to try to earn a place in the true vine by producing fruit that imitates it, like you're some kind of a recruit at the NFL combine, you will only produce sorrow and frustration. You've got to abide in the love of Jesus Christ first, and then the fruit will come. You must be grafted in first. You've got to be part of the true vine first. And the reason that you have so much frustration in your Christian walk is because no matter how many times I tell you this, you will keep running back to being productive instead of resting in, abiding in the love of Jesus Christ. And so then you self-evaluate and you go, this is trash. This is trash. This is not Christianity. My life, the way I live it, is not what he describes. And so then you will find yourself running to one of these four wells. Self-improvement, approval from others, the world. I need some psych meds and therapy or religion. Let me put together an ascetic lifestyle whereby I can bring God into my debt. And you claim to be a Christian. And so Jesus is like, hey, can we not do that? Can we just abide in my love? Did you hear what he said earlier in the chapter? You're already clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. What? What? He's talking to his disciples. Minus one. You're already clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. Abide in my love. I'm I'm trying to get it through all of our thick skulls. Because somebody will walk out of here and be like, well, wrath and judgment. (laughs) Because we know what we deserve. And I appreciate that. And I'm not trying to downplay our guilt before a thrice holy God. It is not as though you haven't added your sin to Adam's or your sin to Eve's. You have and done breathtakingly worse. What I'm trying to get us to see is the only way that you're going to walk the way he walked is if you abide in his love first. Love comes first. Relationship comes first. Then and only then, John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, it will happen. You will produce fruit in keeping with your profession of faith. You will, yeah, walk just as he himself walked in relationship with his father, keeping the commandments in that order. You can't keep the commandments unless you are in relationship with the father through Jesus Christ. And whatever commandments you keep outside of that framework is just filthy rags. The other thing I would point out, and I'm going to turn it over to Cecil, is even if you're killing it, even if you are nailing it, crushing it, 
you're going to get pruned. You're going to get cut back and it's going to hurt and you're going to think, wrath and judgment, wrath and judgment. He promised he would cut us back. And if he doesn't, we'd stop producing fruit, just like a grapevine. So when you're suffering, when you're afflicted, when you're in pain, when there's sorrow, please, please, I'm begging you, try to understand it does not mean that you no longer abide in the love of Christ. It may mean precisely that you do abide in the love of Christ. Let me pray. Our Father, we, um, we don't want to sin more that grace might abound. We don't want to wipe our mouths and say we've done no wrong. So we've journeyed now for a month from verse 8 of chapter 1. Denying that we have sin makes us a liar to verse 6 of chapter 2, where we're told we've got to walk just as you walked. And we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Jesus, you know how prone we are to make secondary things primary. You know how desperate we are for the help of your Holy Spirit, to hold these things in their proper order. Please, Jesus, write this truth upon our hearts that we must abide in you, the true vine, first before any of our fruit matters at all. And then let us bear fruit. We pray for this in Jesus' beautiful name and God's people said, Amen. As uh, Pastor James mentioned, I am Cecil. I'm one of the elders here. I have the honor in serving in that position. Um, this morning, our devotion, I would like to go to Colossians chapter 3. I know this is a, a little bit different set of verses for communion, but uh, the Lord put it on my heart this past week, actually last Saturday. The Bible app that I have gives uh, verses for every day, a verse of the day. And this one struck me, and I wanted to share that with you. So, I would ask that while we read these verses, or before we do, and while we're reading them, that you reflect on a few things. First, I'd ask that you remember and reflect on what Jesus did for you and for me, and that he gave of himself so that you and I might be able to have a relationship with him, our creator. I'd like for us to reflect on where our relationship is with Jesus this morning, remembering many times that Jesus James has preached, and we've heard again today, no matter where you're at, Jesus is right there beside you, and he's ready to guide and uphold you because he loves you. I'd like for us also to reflect on our relationships with others, remembering that if God so loved us, we ought to also love others. And lastly, I'd like you to remember this morning that as Jesus told us to do this, take communion, 
uh, he also gave us a promise that he will be returning to take us to that place he is preparing for us. So if you would, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. And reflect and think about those things I just mentioned. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so must also, so must also you forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. For anyone who's joining us for the first time, uh, when we take communion in the morning, what we do is we come up to the front here as families and friends. If you are here for the first time or you're here by yourself, uh, there are those who would be happy to share with you in communion. Myself, Lee, Rick, Matt, James, just get any one of us. We'd also ask that uh, communion be shared by those who have a belief in Jesus, who have a relationship with him. So having said that, I'm going to pray at this point. And after I pray, I'd ask that you come down and share in communion. So let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for we, as we come to this part of the service, where we do what you have commanded to us, that uh, we take in the Lord's Supper, remembering that you gave of yourself physically and spiritually so that we might have a relationship with God, our Creator. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray for your love. We thank you for your grace. Lord, forgive us where we fall short. We lift these prayers up to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat>